All right. Well, everybody turn to your neighbor and say this. Today's going to be tough. Keep repeating after me to your neighbor. I hope you have an open mind and are full of both humility and kindness. But from the looks of things, I'm not too optimistic. All right. I'll tell you in advance today that the sermon's going to be uh, a bit raw, uh, perhaps a bit offensive uh, to some of you. This would be an, an excellent week, by the way, if you have not checked in kids to children's ministry. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, an, an age appropriateness, I would call it, to today's message. You have time as I'm going to pray and then do a bit of review from last and previous Sunday. So would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord, Father? I just pray, God, that we would understand this morning that that those of us who profess faith in you and who adore you and who treasure you see you as the ultimate source of truth. Lord, that we, we value your opinion, your thoughts above our own. And we submit to your lordship. And we know, Father, that what you have to say about us and have purposed for us is altogether better than what we would say about ourselves and have purposed for ourselves, and we trust you. We lean into you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Romans 1, thus far, Paul has demonstrated that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, believing, non-believing, black, white, we all have the same problem. We have rebelled against God. And God has make, made himself known to us. We talked about last week him doing that in creation, how the earth itself, the atmosphere, the, the solar system, is it's all uniquely positioned human beings for flourishing, for our, our best, for our brightest. God uh, has also made himself known to humans inside of our consciences. doesn't matter if you're a believer, a believer or, or not. You've got some sense of what is right from what is wrong. How is that possible without some kind of moral lawgiver? We looked at this last week. The reality is that we feel guilt as human beings, and cats don't feel guilt, and great white sharks don't feel guilt, and yet we do. So we talked about that. Deep down, deep down, everyone knows there is a God. And yet they don't know, we said, because they don't want to know. Humanity, in Paul's words, has suppressed the truth. The truth that there is a glorious God. The truth that he is all ruling and knowing. 
that he's in charge, but we keep pushing down the beach ball below the surface of the water, the truth, and in the pool of life because we want to be the glorious ones. We want to be the ones that know everything. We want to be the ones that rule. We want to be the generation that's smarter than every generation that has come before us. We want to be in charge. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. Paul says the only way that you can arrive at the conclusion that there is no God is if you have a heart that is biased against all of the obvious evidence. And so the suppression of truth, we learn, takes two forms. It takes on the form of irreligious suppression, like that of the atheists and agnostics who we love and who are more than welcome here. Um, and they say, if there is a God, well, why is there suffering? And if there was a God, why are there so many other religions? These are great questions. But the great assumption, as my missionary friend pointed out to me at one time uh, in my life, is that I, in asking those questions, think that I am more compassionate than God. If only I were running things, the world would be a much better place. Then there's the religious suppression of the truth. That's where we worship different kinds of gods, hobbies, pleasures, thrills. We will find something or someone to live for apart from God. We will attach, if not to God, value to something. Every human being worships. Human, humans will determine uh, that, that without something or, or someone, life is just simply not worth living. We read that in songs from every generation. We gave you a few examples last week. Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist who is not a Christian, says this, there are no true atheists, practically speaking. There are those who acknowledge the God that they are worshiping and those who don't, end quote. Even if you grew up Christian, chances are along the way, uh, besides God, something uh, took the ultimate place and priority and, and seat of your heart, your job, your friend's approval, getting married, your dream, whatever that may be vocationally, something mattered more. Something took a higher seat uh, to something you gave more glory. So in every heart and for all time, there have been competing affections for God's glory, um, for the attention that only our creator deserves. And these little competitors, they all have one thing in common. They exist, we, we told you last week, to serve us. That is why they exist. This is what Paul meant when he said in verse 25 of the first chapter, this is where we left off. They, or we should say we, is really what he means by they, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So we, we, we have whole lists of things that have taken God's place. Our lists are nauseating. Our lists are specific. The bottom line is everyone has rejected the truth 
and we have replaced God, our creator, with created things, and we've given those things the high place that only God deserves. This is what the Apostle Paul and the Bible as a whole teaches. We learned last week that God's first wave of judgment due to human action and, and human uh, rejection of him is very subtle. He just gave humans what they wanted. That's how God responded. Romans 1.26, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. He just gave us what we asked for. It's as if the earth said to the sun, I told you I want to be the center of the solar system, not you, sun, me, earth. And it's as if the sun just granted the earth's request. And, and what would happen? Of course, we know the solar system would absolutely crumble and become unraveled because the sun gave the earth what it asked for. How many of our lives have to some degree unraveled because God has given us simply what we've wanted? what we've asked for. We concluded last week showing you this. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for images, so God exchanged them. Verse 26, over to disgraceful passions and unnatural sexual desires. They dishonored God in verse 21, so God let them dishonor themselves in verse 24. They did not see fit to acknowledge God in verse 28, so God gave them up to an unfit mind. There's this tit for tat. All God is doing is giving us what we asked for. And now Paul's going to explain how this has played out practically over the course of history. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I have just read to you the longest and clearest passage from the Bible on homosexuality. Before I continue, I want to acknowledge that historically, the church has done a horrible job with this, generally speaking. Um, we've done an even worse job caring for people who have same-sex attractions. It is true. We have damaged people. Um, and frankly, we have hurt God's case in the way that we have treated this. So I want to begin by just acknowledging that to, to everyone. I don't know that we have ever tackled this subject as we are going to this morning in our history. We, we come to passages like this. My promise is I'm not going to cherry pick sins and, and preach on them for fun, but I'm also not going to ignore running across something when the text says it. We're going, to, we're going to talk about it. And so we're talking about it this morning. And I just want to ask you as we continue to please have an open mind, to please have a posture of humility. We value the word of God. We value it as a church. Paul says that, that one of the results 
of displacing God in the center of the human heart for other affections is that we develop unnatural sexual patterns. Humanity, he says in verse 26, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So God exchanged, remember he gave us what we wanted, our natural and healthy and beautiful passions for unnatural ones. Paul is not picking on homosexuality here by placing it first in his list. In one sense, the fact that it's first should not surprise us. Why? Well, if God made us in his image, male and female, as the Bible teaches, it should not surprise us that our rejection of him would show up in the way that we relate to other humans. That shouldn't surprise us at all. One scholar says, Paul cites homosexuality first, not because it's a greater sin than any other, but because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation, end quote. Now, you need to know that, especially in modern times, some have argued, and many a pastors in, in primarily other traditions than ours, that this passage and other passages, there are several in, in both the Old and New Testament, refer primarily to promiscuous acts. For example, prostitution or a one-night stand. Um, these would argue that Paul, the apostle, was simply unfamiliar with an enduring, committed relationship between two people of the same gender. Okay, um, But the argument that there were not committed homosexual relationships in the Roman world is simply false. It's false. Um, the idea that Paul would not have been familiar with two men who were committed only to one another is simply not true. There were most certainly uh, same-sex relationships that were exclusive, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, nobody else in the days of, of Paul. Uh, Plutarch, who wrote in the first century, he made this distinction in his writings. He noticed the difference between homosexuality for mere pleasure, which he considered himself unworthy, a secular man, and then homosexuality rooted in a uh, relationship, a committed relationship, which Plutarch thought beautiful and noble. Plato, in one of his works, mentions two men who were lovers for 10 years. So the Apostle Paul, being as well-read as he was, being as well-traveled as he was, most certainly would have heard and been familiar with two people of the same sex in an enduring relationship. And yet, and yet, he does not distinguish between those types of homosexuality in this or other passage. He identifies all sexual relations of men with men or of women with women as a departure from nature, as a departure from God's design for, for human flourishing. He is not picking on homosexuals in mentioning them first. He's showing they're among the clearest examples of elevating our desires over God's desires. Paul doesn't stop with homosexuality. 
He goes on to mention other ways we suppress the truth, verses 28 through 32. And since they, and again, you have to remember they means we, because Paul would later say, I am the chief of all sinners. So we're talking about all of us. And we, since we did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, we've already talked about sexual disorder. Let's look at a few other items that Paul lists. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Some of your versions will say greed and malice. He's talking about economic disorder. It exists in the human race. We don't know what to do with our money. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers. Notice that he's talking about social disorder. Paul's talking about how you act on Facebook. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, even inventing things, new things that are evil. He's talking about spiritual disorder. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now he's talking about familial disorder, family dysfunction. How many of you have a bit of that? Every family's got a bit of that, right? So notice how the elevation of our desires over God's desires has affected every part of our humanity. Sexual, economic, spiritual, familial. We could go on and on. Theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity. Not meaning that we can't be more bad than we already are, but meaning that every part of us is affected by this suppression of the truth, which every one of us does. This is not, by the way, meant to be an exhaustive list. It's only meant to be a sample. There are some Greek words that are junk drawer categories for any kind of sin the human heart can conceive. There's no way to mention this all. Let's be honest. How many of you are guilty of like 80 to 85% of the things on the list that I just read? Let's go through them again, just for kicks. Unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, envy, murder, quarreling, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, hating God, being arrogant, proud, boasting, inventing evil, being disobedient to parents, senselessness, being untrustworthy, being unloving, being unmerciful. Again, how many of you are guilty of most of the things on that list? So being disobedient to parents is on Paul's list. You might struggle less with some things, but I hope that this is effective in showing you that all of us are corrupt at our core. And when I look at this as your pastor, I must acknowledge I'm corrupt at my core. Here's what all of these sins have in common. They have a root sin. And the root sin, the chief sin, 
the really wicked sin is rejecting God as our center, as the seat, as the sum, as the priority in our lives, as the ruler of our lives, as the Lord of our lives. And Paul is saying that on that point, all of us have participated equally. You and I do not get to choose which sin affects us. Not all the time. And some people, like myself, corruption manifests itself in the form of a short fuse. In others, overeating. In others, friends with benefits. The reality is, as Albert Moeller points out, we all even have sexual desires that are corrupt in some way or another. And in that sense, at the fear of being misunderstood, I want to tell you this morning that you can think of homosexuality as an affliction, not just a sinful choice. Let me explain. For most gay people, especially in the church, people having same-sex attraction, they will tell you that they did not choose those desires. In fact, they will tell you that they have prayed and prayed and prayed for God to remove those desires from them. In some cases, those desires have not been removed. So those who struggle with same-sex attraction will tell you that they first struggle with unanswered prayers, that they've begged God to take it away. And here's what that means. It means that people with the same-sex attraction should, first and foremost, be recipients of our compassion, of our care, of our love. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is that same-sex behavior is any less sinful than my outbursts of anger or your envy. What I'm saying is that we don't always choose our weaknesses or our version of our corruption. And what that means is that gay and lesbian people are not worse sinners than other people. They are affected by a different dimension of the curse that all of us are affected with. Here's three errors, in fact, that we have made in the church. First, we've thought that God doesn't care about homosexuality, that he's indifferent, that he's passive. Indeed, he does care. He is not laissez-faire. This passage is crystal clear, as are others like this one, like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So when someone says... 
but I was born this way. I don't mean biologically, but I do mean that they're partially correct in the sense that others of us were born with a potential to a raging temper or lust or materialism. The Bible's message isn't that, isn't that we aren't born into sin. It's that we're all born into sin and that we all need to be born again. That's the Bible's message. And hear me on this. Just because we possess innately a passion does not make it right or godly or justify it. Um, if some pe- I know some people, they just seemed, I can be, remember back in elementary school at people that I would call cocky or boastful or arrogant, kindergartners. They just seemed to be born that way. They were born with a propensity. It doesn't justify their sin, but I'm saying that possessing a desire innately shows us that our hearts are corrupt. That's what it shows us, that we need help. So regardless of what you may have been told, the gospel message is not let the gay become straight. The gospel message is let the dead become alive. That's the gospel message. And his grace is available to all of us. Here's another way the church has erred. We've called it the worst sin. We have called it the worst sin for as long as I can remember. Look at this list. Deceit, pride, greed. Do you know what greed has done to humanity? Do you think those sins are equally depraved and corrupting? You should, because they are. What about a pride that comes from religion? This Paul talks about in Galatians 4. And, and, and frequently, in terms of frequency of mention, there are quite a few sins that are mentioned more than homosexuality and that are mentioned with more passion and gusto than homosexuality. We see, in fact, Jesus showing great empathy for people involved in sexual sin. Multiple times. And we see Jesus demonstrating great animosity and passion toward those who are religiously proud. Jesus didn't say it's harder for the same sex attracted to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He said it's hard for the materially wealthy to get into heaven, harder than it is for the camel to go through the the eye of, of a needle. Please understand, I'm not saying, again, that homosexuality is not sinful. It grieves the heart of God. God. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm saying that the church has long presented it differently than does the Bible. Jen Wilkin, 
theologian says, we should whisper about what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about. And, and here's what I want you to hear. What the Bible shouts is that the worst sin, the core sin, the sin behind all other sins is something that all of us are guilty about. This is the gospel. And if as we understand the gospel, as did the apostle Paul, we will see, as Paul did, that we are the worst sinners we know. And we'll correctly understand that if God can die for us, he can die for anybody. When we realize that, we'll quit being religious teachers and we'll start being gospel witnesses. When we realize this, we'll actually love our neighbors who think differently than we, and we will show them compassion. And, and we'll think them worthy of our compassion, not of our scorn, not of our judgment, not of us seeing them as a, as a political voting block. Amen? People are not what they vote. third way we've gone wrong in the church is to assume that it's hard for LGBTQ folks to get into heaven. Let me be very clear about what I'm about to say. Same-sex attraction does not send you to hell. Any more than heterosexual attraction sends you to heaven. It's not the way it works. What sends you to hell is refusing to allow Jesus to be the Lord and the center and the seat and the sum of who you are, of your existence. And, and that includes, of course, your sexual life. It also includes your ability to obey, obey him with your money and with your career and with your kindness towards your neighbor. And it's not where, this is the point I'm making, it's not where you rebel that matters. It's that your rebellion exists. Rosaria Butterfield, practicing lesbian, professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse, said that Romans chapter 1 brought her to Christ. In fact, the pastor who led her to Jesus refused to argue for the longest time with her over her lesbianism. He told her, according to Romans 1, your real issue was who gets to call the shots in your life. That's the real issue. Rosaria would later explain, I quote, Romans 1 revealed my heart to me. Paul shows us that we all go through what Eve went through in the garden. We have to ask who gets to declare what is good. What is, Lord, in my life, my desires or God's word? Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil. Play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for my gratification rather than with pleasure for his glory. End quote. And what that means is this. 
repentance for the gay and lesbian looks exactly like repentance for anyone else. It means fundamentally the same thing. It means saying, God, I am sorry for elevating my own personal desires over yours. I am sorry for attempting to define myself and and gain my identity in something, in someone, apart from your design. I'm sorry for taking on myself the authority, the mantle to declare what is good and what is bad. I am sorry for seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment rather than giving the glory and honor to you. I recognize that Jesus is Lord, I turn over everything to him. That is how we become Christians. That's what repentance looks like for the gay, for the straight, for the young, for the old, for the black, for the white, for the rich, for the poor, for the Jew, for the Gentile. We all come to Jesus the same way. And the course in for all of us is to play God and to say what's right, and to say what's wrong. Here's the bottom line. Paul's approach to homosexuality is not what we would call liberal, and it is not what we would call classically conservative. Paul, the apostle, does not deny its sinfulness like a liberal, nor does he elevate it to the chief of all sins like a conservative he lists it as one of the many examples of corruption that are found in the hearts of human beings that have rejected God. One more verse, verse 32. We'll end with this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Remember, this is a long list of things. We all deserve, therefore, to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Idolatry has placing something in the seat, in the priority apart from God, has produced the most horrendous sins in all of human history. Just think about it for a moment. Sins that we we look back on now and say, boy, have we evolved and boy, are we glad we've evolved as a human race. Some of the most brutal conquests in all of human history were were justified. Taking somebody's land was somehow justified. Land that didn't belong to ourselves. It was justified. Okay, at the time, according to the Apostle Paul, it was applauded. It was condoned. It was approved. At one point, human slavery was applauded. It was condoned. It was approved. Yet today, we know it's wrong to just go ahead and take somebody else's land. That's why we have a problem with it when Russia moves into the Crimea. That's why it bothers that we know today it's wrong, okay? Human slavery, we know today is wrong. It's wrong. We wouldn't have segregated seating. We know that that's wrong. Yet at a time, both of those evils were rationalized by society. Society knew but it didn't know because we didn't want to know. In church, there are still ways in which we are practicing as a society idolatry. 
And this is what I want to close with. In many ways, the foundation of the pro-choice movement agenda is committed to idolatry. I want to be the one, instead of God, who determines the life or the death of a human baby based on how it affects me. The following came from the Planned Parenthood website explaining their commitment to abortion. Quote, everyone has their own unique and valid reasons for having an abortion. Some of the many different reasons people decide to end a pregnancy include they're not in a relationship with someone they want to have a baby with. It's not a good time in their life to have a baby. They want to finish school, focus on work, or achieve other goals before having a baby, or they just don't want to be a parent. In other words, they don't want to know. And Paul says there are things that a society not only does, but also gives approval to those who practice. And I will tell you that as a person, as a people of faith with conservative or liberal political leanings, I don't care, we have to hold to. I want you to consider this. Is a baby inside the womb of a human being made in the image of God? Absolutely. And I say this as a pastor who's sensitive to some in our congregation who have had abortions. We've talked. Absolutely. And if so, is it ever right? Is it ever right to, 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 to take another human life? It's not. It's never right. Because in submission to Christ, we don't get to call this shot. God gets to call the shot. Someone says, my rights, my body. I agree, but the unborn child is not a part of the human mom's body. It's got its own DNA. It's got its own heartbeat. It's got its own brain waves and, and blood type. I believe that women should have control of their own bodies. I, be, I believe that men should have control, and, and that's another reason to believe in the validity of human life inside of a womb, because regardless of, of whether or not it's a man and a woman, we're taking life without its consent. What about rape and incest? These are heart-rending situations. But I still maintain that the child is not responsible. If, if we make decisions, how, how does a just and fair society uh, treat innocent human beings that, that, that remind us of painful events in our lives? How do we do that? Is the answer by killing them? What about one-year-olds or two-year-olds that remind us of pain? John Piper said this, I took an abortionist out to lunch once. 
prepared to give him 10 reasons why the unborn are human beings. And he stopped me and he said, I know that we are killing children. I was stunned. He said, it's simply a matter of justice for women. It would be a greater evil to deny the woman the equal right of reproductive freedom, which means we should, we should as uh, you should as women, so goes the argument, be no more encumbered by the consequences of a pregnancy than should a man who can just simply walk away. So goes the argument. But the abortionist continued, we know what that means, though. We know we are killing children. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. This year, the New York legislature passed a bill approving abortion up to the very moment of birth. You tell me, what's the difference in that life just inside the womb than just outside of the room? And do you know what happened in that room? Exactly what Paul said would happen in his own day and would continue to happen. The legislature applauded. Cheered. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice And we look at them and we say, here's the bigger point. We look at them and we say, what's wrong with them? But the point of Paul's message is to get you to say, what's wrong with us? We've participated in the same idolatry. The chief wickedness is not slavery. It's not homosexuality. It's not even abortion. It's replacing God as the center of the human heart. And let me just prove this quickly. Generally speaking, the same folks who have historically been pro-life in the womb have been functionally anti-life once the baby's out of the womb. That's deplorable. Pro-life but anti-welfare. You tell me how that works, buckaroo. What's your big solution? What's going to happen when all the babies are saved that you want to save? Pro-life, but condescending towards the foster care system. How's that working out? An eight-year-old in foster care is equally made in the image and likeness of God as an unborn baby in the womb. Amen? So we're all guilty. And this is exactly where Paul's logic is taking us. To his conclusion in chapter 3, which we'll get to, but I'll give you a sneak peek. There's no one righteous, not even one. It's going to take a while for these to get to good mood sermons in the book of Romans. Just so that you're aware. Let's pray. Father... We have all sinned. We're going to read that too. We have all fallen short. We have all replaced you with something, with someone, with some idea, 
with some opinion, with some value. And I pray, Father, that in submitting to your lordship as Christians, that we would give you the place that you rightfully deserve and that we would not suppress but accept the truth. Your way is best. Change us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.